You're listening to the Food Freedom Podcast, hosted by me, Dylan Murphy, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Food Freedom Podcast explores the topics of intuitive eating, mindset, and body respect to help you create a lifestyle of lasting food freedom. We believe it's possible to feel confident in your food choices and connected to your body. And here on the Food Freedom Podcast, we will show you how. I'm the owner of Free Method Nutrition, a nutrition coaching practice helping women make peace with food, heal their relationship with their body, and create sustainable health habits. We welcome all foods over here, from kale salads to queso and everything in between. Let's dive in. Hey, Rachel. Welcome to Food Freedom Podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes. I'm so excited for this conversation. And I feel like we're like friends that haven't even really met in person, but I feel like I know you. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, so to start, I would love just to hear a little more about you, your background. I know you recently, I think you recently graduated your master's, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little more just about you. Sure. Yeah. So I did. I recently graduated um, with a master's in counseling. Um, and I actually, before becoming a therapist, I was actually an educator. Um, so I went to elementary school for a couple of Uh years. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So during that time, um, I, you know, honestly started becoming like super curious about, um, kids behaviors and like why they acted the way that they did. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was seeing a lot of kids who were being punished for, um, quote unquote, like acting out right um, mm-hmm. and client behaviors. And there was just something inside of me that knew, like, that's not the whole story. And I, I knew there was something deeper going on there. Um, so that kind of led me to realizing and learning a lot about trauma. Um, I started doing a lot of research, a lot of reading about how trauma affects the brain and the body and and really just started bringing evidence to the school, basically saying like, hey, maybe these kids aren't oppositional. Maybe they're not defiant. Maybe they're actually hurting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe we need to be more um, intentional about giving them the services that they need um, in school. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome that you like recognize that and chose to do like deeper work to see like feel like there's more to the story here than what we're just seeing. Yeah, yeah. And my intuition knew. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that kind of piece was kind of like how I, you know, dove into the trauma world. And then as far as my passion for working with eating disorders, um, I am fully recovered myself. And yeah. You know, I think that's the story for um, a lot of us in this field. But um, yeah, I, you know, when I was teaching, like the the parallel between me getting to a place where I felt really strong in recovery, I, I felt fully recovered and was like became super passionate about wanting to see women have the same freedom, right? And so yeah, um, kind of those two passions, um, I saw them kind of fused together in like a really unique way, and I just remember. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one day I was in the classroom and I just remember thinking, gosh, I think I'm in the wrong field. <laughs> I think I need yeah. to change. <laughs> uh, so at 27, I went back to school. Um, and here we are. That's awesome. Yeah, I did not know that. So this is technically like your second career then. 
Yeah. Wow. And have you started seeing, cause you graduated and I know you got a job. So you're seeing clients now. Yeah. Yeah. Say clients. Yeah. So I am, um, I'm working part-time working at kind of a higher level of care, um, at the Renfrew mm-hmm. Center. Um, and then uh-huh. I'm also working in private practice too. So, yeah, that's that. awesome. That's awesome. So, yeah, I would love to, you mentioned trauma and you mentioned eating disorders. And I know I see that as well so often with clients is there's oftentimes with eating disorders, there's more to the story where there's trauma, there's something else, the one on that kind of triggered the eating disorder as a means to cope with it. So kind of to start before we even dive more into kind of the intersection there, I would love to hear more on just like trauma in general and how you define trauma. I know there's a lot of like, I've heard people talk about like big T trauma and little T trauma, or if like all trauma is like the same or yeah. So I would love just to hear a little more your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that's such a good question, and I think there's there's kind of this misconception a little bit about what trauma is. So, mm-hmm. um, and I really had a paradigm shift for for me when I started diving into the research and really um, just learning more about it. But I think it's important to understand like trauma isn't isn't necessarily the event, but it's more about what happens in our bodies when we experience something overwhelming or something yeah. too much. Um, mm-hmm. So I think a good example of that is like every human being on the planet right now is alive in 2020. Oh my gosh, yeah. We are all experiencing our own unique trauma responses as we're walking through a global pandemic. And Mm. yes, a global pandemic is traumatic. Like I think Mm -hmm. you can qualify that as a natural disaster, national disaster, I don't know. Yeah. And also all of our nervous systems, all of our bodies are reacting to this thing that is, that came, it's just too much. It's, it's too yeah, much. Yeah. All of us. Mm. And so then like different people respond different ways to it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's so interesting. So when we look at the research, there's actually brain scans mm-hmm. now to support this, but um, two people that experience the exact same trauma, whether it is an, a global pandemic or it's mm-hmm. a car accident, um, two people are going to experience that trauma and react in totally different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So that's super interesting too. So that might, yeah. look, you know, someone um, be becoming more anxious, becoming more in like a hyper aroused state. Mm-hmm. Um, so panicky, anxious, worried. Whereas the mm-hmm. person, another person who experiences the exact same trauma might go straight into being dissociated and shut down. And not wow. Mind. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. And so then what do you see? I mean, I know eating disorders we talked about, but what what are some other ways you feel like people typically cope with trauma, whether it's like, I guess, productive ways to cope or, you know, just finding something they can do to help control it? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think when we're thinking about um like coping with trauma, we have to ask ourselves, like, what are we coping with? Um, What are we trying to accomplish, right, by coping? Um, So a lot of my work, I'm very grounded in kind of the the mind-body connection. And so coping is, it is um, our thoughts and and what's in our brain, but we're also not brains on a stick. Um, Mm -hmm. So really what we're doing when we're trying to cope with a trauma response Mm -hmm. is, is really trying to gain two things, trying to gain control 
and then try mm-hmm. and gain safety because we know mm-hmm. that trauma in and of itself is a threat to our feelings of safety. And so when we're trying to cope, we're trying to feel in control and we're trying to feel yeah. safe. Right? Yeah. And so then you kind of find what, what that is that makes you feel in control and makes you feel safe. Yeah. So for some people that might be um, turning to food or, or not turning to food, um, mm-hmm. for some people, you know, when we you think like adapt, more adaptive coping or, or coping that is more helpful in the long mm-hmm. run, maybe something like turning to social support for or, or friends for social support, right? Or mm-hmm. uh, turning to a spiritual practice or meditation or art or whatever it is that's yeah. the central nervous system um, and helps the body feel more grounded and safe again. Mm, yeah. And so then with that being said, and you talked about like people are wanting control and safety when they're dealing with the trauma. And so when I think about eating disorders, I think of those, even though it's like a false sense of control and a false sense of safety that, I mean, people can very much feel that even if it's, you know, again, temporarily, because it's going to end up completely taking over their life. But what are some things do you see maybe in like the work you do, or even just from what you learned in school of like, what leads people to those eating disorder behaviors as a result of trauma? Yeah, yeah. So that's a good question. So, um, you know, when I think about certain, it's, it's hard because we don't, in some ways we can't know, right? We, we can't see the um, trauma leading to dysregulation, leading straight to a certain eating disorder behavior. Uh, so yeah. it's hard, like there's not a linear necessarily path there. Um, but what we do know is that like eating disorder behaviors are specific manifestations of how someone might be coping with their trauma. Um, and some of the things that I see specifically with like, so how do those behaviors manifest, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, what we know about trauma is it's it's activating our defense systems. It's activating, activating our need for self-protection. So when that happens, mm-hmm. our bodies are going to go into, it's, it's more complicated, but we're going to simplify it and say, yeah, you know, like this fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? Yeah. So what happens when trauma gets stuck in the body is that our bodies can get stuck or like, in that space, it kind of becomes like our default mode of operating. So someone who is struggling with an eating disorder, whose default mode is a flight response, right? Their response to trauma is to run away, movement away. Mm -hmm. Those behaviors, as far as showing up in in therapy or in recovery would, would look more like anxiety, panic, obsessive thoughts, restriction, binging, and I see a lot of excessive exercising. That one's so interesting because it's yeah. a running away from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I see that one a lot with, you know, someone whose default mode is more a flight response. Yeah. Um, someone whose default mode is more of a fight response. Um, you might see behaviors like purging, chewing and spitting, mm-hmm. Um, anger turned in on the body, like self-harm behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. We're wanting to like fight with that, that trauma energy. Yeah. Um, and then also someone who is, you know, their default mode is to freeze. Um, you, you know, you may see, and this is super common. I see this a lot, but mm-hmm. you may see someone present as being just really disconnected from their body. Um, really numb, really just dissociated, um, mm-hmm. unable to track fullness and hunger. Just, you see a lot more of that depressed mood. 
Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you're talking to, I'm thinking through like as a dietitian and working with clients on this end of things, like what I often see too, especially maybe more so the ones you were talking about with like the anxiety and restricting and over-exercising where you're basically your body becomes malnourished too, or like the way that your brain is functioning is not at its optimal level. And so thinking about having like, I don't know, even like the mental capacity to be able to do this trauma work probably I mean, I know from my experience I've seen with clients, it, I feel like it almost takes in some situations getting them nourished so that they can handle the trauma work, but then getting them nourished is hard in and of itself. So, yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if you have any, like, comments on that or thoughts on that. Yeah, gosh, that's such a good point. Um, and I think it's so important to know, like, you know, some. I heard you saying, like, I want my clients to feel a sense of nourishment before we dive into this deeper work. Um, and that is so important, especially when we look at it from a brain perspective, right? Because mm-hmm. what we know is food communicates yeah. safety to the brain. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to dive into this deeper work and start to really heal from my trauma, I have to feel mm-hmm. safe. Right. And so yeah. I think you make a really good point. Like what you're saying is so reflected in the neuroscience as far as, mm-hmm. yes, we have to nourish. And, and what we know is that comes from like a lower part of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. Our brainstem, like that's our fundamental like safety meter in the brain. Yeah. It's fullness and hunger. It is, um, you know, that's all situated right there. Um, mm-hmm. So looking from it as like, treatment from like a bottom-up approach which mm-hmm. you know we could talk about later but like treating the eating disorder from the bottom of the brain up um uh-huh. you are making exact like the exact right point is like yeah. you have to be nourished and we have to target yeah. lower brain region functionings before we can get to um some of the deeper work yeah yeah which probably brings up even more like thoughts and emotions and fears and all everything if you're telling someone with an eating disorder I mean it's more than telling but you're working with them through like how to eat more and then it's like this is probably going to bring up your trauma or just these thoughts of wanting to like like you said fight flight freeze um so yeah it's very very it's like peeling back an onion like there's so many layers to it yeah and I think it's so interesting because I see a lot um, and sometimes I hear it, it makes me sad, like, you mm-hmm. know, eating disorders are so hard to treat or eating disorder clients are mm-hmm. just distant. And I think we have to reframe that and mm-hmm. not even reframe, but I think we have to question and understand why that is. And the mm-hmm. reason that treating eating disorders is so hard is because in a way, like the eating disorder works. It doesn't yeah. do what you need it to do. It is mm-hmm. that blanket of safety. It is the armor of protection. And so yeah. What we're asking clients to do when we're asking clients to give up these behaviors is we're asking them to give up the only thing that they know mm-hmm. is safety to them. And so there has to be an empathetic, you know, stance towards that, right? Yeah. It's, these kind of goes back to like my kids that I used to work with, like you're not yeah. oppositional, um, you don't mm-hmm. feel safe. And so mm-hmm. we, I think we have to respect that and and, and I think, I mean, that's just another reason why eating disorders truly are, um, they are hard to treat and, yeah. um, and we need to mm. have compassion and empathy for that, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's something I talk a lot about with clients, especially if you think about someone whose trauma maybe stems back to like their childhood years where they were so impressionable and they were like little sponges. And so everything that happened just like stuck with them. Mm -hmm. I feel like giving clients space to, I mean, basically tell them like you were doing the best you could, like you were six years old when you were going through X, Y, Z trauma and you wanted to grab onto whatever you could to feel safe. And maybe for you, that was your eating disorder behavior. And for someone else, maybe they had more resources or family that kind of recognized it and could you know, get them into therapy earlier. Like it's letting, I feel like clients, not that that like completely heals them in the moment, but I feel like they find a lot of like freedom or almost like that breath of fresh air of like, okay, yeah, like I was doing the best I could to care for my body and now I know that this isn't carried for my body like I thought. So then how do I unlearn all of these patterns and replace them with more like productive patterns basically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then what like for people listening who, cause I think the hard thing, and we were talking about this before we hit record of like this whole conversation, like trauma and eating disorders is like, I feel like for a lot of people it takes, months and years to recover from so it's not like you know you listen to a podcast episode and you like all the lights turn on you're like this makes so much sense but like for someone listening who maybe has and they probably don't say it this plainly but realizing like I'm struggling with an eating disorder I have this history of trauma help me (laughs) like where do you feel like is like the and I'm sure it's different for different people but like where do you feel like is where you usually start yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think, my, you know, where I always start mm-hmm. I tend to be more of a strengths-based um, mm-hmm. therapist, but um, uh-huh. to say, way to go for being yeah. resilient um, and doing what you knew to do at the time in order to meet your fundamental basic needs for mm-hmm power, control, safety, love, belonging, like mm-hmm. you did what you needed to do. Um, yeah. And so I think my first is, is what you said, you know, a couple minutes ago is affirming that resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, with now what we know about trauma manifesting in the body and fundamentally reorganizing and changing our nervous systems, my approach mm-hmm. um, is very um, what I call bottom up. So I kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier, like treating the lower parts of the brain first, because what we know about trauma, um, trauma cares nothing about the rational mind. um, Mm -hmm. And the way that trauma is stored in the body, it is stored in the limbic region of the brain, which is like the midbrain where our emotions are. um, Mm -hmm. And then it's also stored in the lower parts of the brain. So for me, um, I want to start with... um, looking at emotions with looking at the body with looking at um the unconscious and um doing things like incorporating somatic experiencing into work incorporating Mm -hmm. art incorporating yoga um yes i want to get to the um the thinking part of the brain eventually we need Mm -hmm. both um you know things like cognitive behavioral therapy and dbt Mm -hmm. are like kind of the first line of defense sometimes for eating disorders um and that would be what we would call a top-down approach because you're starting with mm-hmm. the most mature parts of the brain looking at the thoughts, right? Um, and yes, we have to address cognitions in treatment. Um, and also, that's not the yeah. part of the brain that's most affected. 
by trauma. So mm. we have to have both and we have to use the CBT, work on the thoughts, um, reframe cognitions, and that has mm. to be paired with more emotion focused, experiential body based treatment. Um, mm. because we're not, we're not thinking people on a stick. We are, we yeah. are brains and then we're attached that is attached to our body, you know, via our provincial yeah. vagal nerve and all the things. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of my approach is really holistic in the sense that I'm doing. Yeah. Well. Mm. And so with that, is it helping someone almost giving them new tactics to cope with the trauma instead of like you're trying to move them away from their eating disorder to something else? And then, like you said, at the same time or maybe, you know, later on in sessions, then you're also digging more into kind of more of the like practical, like reframing thoughts, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it is the first thing that we're going to do is help bring you back down to regulation. Um, Mm -hmm. So when we think of, um, you know, the fight or flight or freeze responses that I was talking about earlier, um, those responses, um, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to explain without a graph. Yeah, be the graph <laughs> my brain. And, and, uh, but um, I will say that our nervous system in safety, um, in connection with other people, um, is not in those fight, flight, freeze states. Um, a grounded, a connected, a, a person and a nervous system that is in the present moment um, is, we would say that your nervous system is in a ventral vagal state. Um, which is the state that's activated when we are grounded, connected in relationship, mm-hmm. and feel safe. Um, so before I do any work with talking about cognitions um, and talking more about the thinking parts of the brain, I have to help get that client into self-regulation because if I'm up in fight, flight, or freeze, like there's no, yeah. like, I, I can't learn. Um, mm-hmm. So I can do the cognitive work. Um, mm-hmm. Is it going to stick? Like, Probably not. Their body is defending themselves there and they don't feel safe, right? Mm -hmm. My approach is always, um, how can I get you to regulation? Um, Mm -hmm. And how can we stay there for long enough to look at the trauma? And and trauma work, you know, there's so much about that, right? Where it's, we're going to stay in regulation for a half a second and then something yeah. that feel safe and I'm going to go right back into those self-defensive, self-protective states. So, I mean, there's so much about trauma work that really is just how can we get the body regulated um, so yeah. it can be a place to do the higher level thinking work. Mm-hmm. Yes, and helping the client be able to do that regulation in their day-to-day life, like in situations that may typically trigger that like fight, flight, freeze reactions. Yeah. And I think this Mm -hmm. is more like psychoeducation with um, people with eating disorders. And even Island, I'm so passionate about working with the whole family because family support is so important in treatment. Um, But I think this is where psychoeducation can be so empowering for clients. Mm -hmm. So often I will lay out, like I'll show the diagram of, um, kind of, you know, your nervous system on trauma. Um, yeah. Use a lot of work from the polyvagal theory. Um, mm-hmm. And from the get go, I'll do psychoeducation. I'll teach, hey, this is what you're, this is your nervous system. And this mm-hmm. is what happens when you're in your eating disorder behaviors. This is where you are. Um, but what we know about health 
mental health, physical health, is that yeah. when healthy, um, we have to get back to a place of regulation. And I mm-hmm. feel like that knowledge is so empowering for clients um, to just understand their bodies, to understand, you know, what is going on for them. And it, it gives them the tools to be able to, I don't know, get grounded in our bodies too, because yeah. you know about eating disorders that it fundamentally disconnects us from mm-hmm. our bodies. And so I think the psychoeducation tool can be so powerful in bringing clients back to this is how yeah. we get into our bodies, right? Yes, because I feel like even the idea of like trusting your body, being connected to your body, feeling safe in your body yes. are very opposite of what eating disorders tell clients and so it can be a hard and uncomfortable because I feel like a lot of times and I think you mentioned this earlier on where people I mean your eating disorder does what it tells you it's going to do in a sense and so you start to feel comfortable and safe and feel controlled and so having someone tell you like actually you can be safe in your body without using these behaviors Mm -hmm. and so let go of that and try this instead, which takes, again, more like what you're talking about, supporting and complementing their strengths. Like, takes so much, like, bravery to be able to walk away from an eating disorder behavior that's become so comfortable, even though it's not serving them, and start implementing other behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you mentioned two uh, phrases earlier that I would love to hear you um, talk on more a little bit, especially for people listening who may not know exactly what they mean with um, you were talking about like regulating our bodies. I would love to hear like what kind of just how you would describe that. And then you also were talking about somatic, like using like somatic techniques in therapy. So I would love to hear you expand on both of this a little more. Yeah. So when I am um, a human, when a person is mm-hmm. um, in a regulated state, um, they are, we are connected in social relationships. We feel seen, we feel accepted, we feel safe. Um, we're able to be in the present moment. Like think about this as, you know, regulation is your sweet spot. It's your good yeah. spot. Um, sometimes people will talk about this in, in language um, using something called the window of tolerance. Um, so mm-hmm. if you can imagine a window um, mm-hmm. and inside that window is your good spot. It's everything I just described. It is um, social connectedness. It is everything us humans were designed to, to need to flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like inside the window, right? And then yeah. if you go above the window, that could be like our, our fight or flight. That's our anxious energy, right? Mm-hmm. So that is a form of dysregulation. And then if I go below the window into a shutdown, dissociated, depressed state, then that's also dysregulation. It just manifests really different, right? Yeah. So if my window, if my window pane is regulation, then anything that, that puts me above or below my optimal state of functioning um, is dysregulation. So it's not regulated. Mm. And that's what trauma does to us, right? Um, yeah. That it, it shoots us up into a spot of either hyper, um, so above mm-hmm. our state of arousal, um, or yeah. below, which is under our state of arousal. Um, and again, I know this stuff is so hard to explain without a doctor. No. <laughs> I felt like, I feel like the visual, like I'm picturing why I have a window right beside me too. Like, I feel like visual helps too of like, okay, so above the window, below the window, but I get it. Like, I feel like 
draw like if we could do this and everyone could see us talking look at this graph this is what we're talking about yes I'm also such a visual learner so anyone that yeah like I need a visual um yes all window of tolerance um and you Uh, have the first graphic that will come up for you in your google search um the window of tolerance it's a thing to understand um so that is what regulation is. So regulation is I can manage my emotions. I can regulate my emotions mm-hmm. and tools so that when I am shot up into anxiety, um, mm-hmm. I know how to get my body back down into the window. Yeah. That can look like things like deep breathing. That can look like things like meditation. That can look like calling a friend. Um, mm. That can look like, this is so, this is a little tip, but putting cold, like a cold pack. Um, yeah. Like, on your body, on your hand. Um, yes. The coldness can help de-escalate or bring you back into that window. Mm. Similar to if you are under your window, right, and in a mm. more dissociated state, that actually might look more like going for a walk or like even like doing a HIIT mm-hmm. workout, like anything to kind of get your heart yes. to get you back into that state of optional functioning. Does that make more yeah. sense? Yeah. Yes, that makes so much sense. And that's a good explanation too of like, if you're in that like hyper versus hypo state, there may be like what works to help regulate you from that state of like hyper regulation or wait, is that the hyper regulation? Is that what's going on? Okay. <laughs> I'm like learning all this too. Um, would be different than what you use when you're in that hypo state. Exactly. Kind of like with, and this is probably a little different, but like if you're feeling sad versus feeling like anger, what you would need to cope with those emotions would probably be pretty different. No, that's spot on. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so then you were talking about somatic, is it just like somatic therapy, somatic treat? What's like the correct phrasing for that? Or is there? There are so, there are so yeah. many. Um, <laughs> there's somatic experiencing. There's like, uh-huh. I mean, there's just a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of treatments, which is good because people in mental health are waking up and realizing, mm. oh, Yeah. People are not brains on a stick. Yeah. Um, we need to address the body in treatment, not just for eating mm-hmm. disorders, but with anxiety, with depression, with any mental struggle um, yeah. to address the body in treatment. And that is especially mm. true um, for an eating disorder that is so embodied. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when I say somatic, it truly is um, it, it's, it's incorporating the body into treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm. doing other things it's complementing the more cognitive thinking left brain analytical treatment with more of the creative embodied Mm. um, metaphorical um, yeah kind of work yes that makes sense because have you learned and I think you were mentioning this maybe before we started talking or at some point in this about just the work that metaphors can play in therapy and I use metaphors a lot with clients too so I would love to hear like why do you think that that helps people understand things better maybe in, especially in this line of work but yeah why do you find metaphors to be helpful ah such a good question you know I feel like um especially with trauma um mm-hmm. sometimes words fall short um mm-hmm. and words they can't adequately communicate um, the depths of the pain or the realities of the experience or what someone's feeling in their body that they just can't communicate. 
Um, yeah. I think what metaphors do is that they, it takes us out of our left brain and it puts mm-hmm. us into um, more of our right brain functioning, which is our creative side, right? Um, yeah. And, and I think it says, I don't have words to explain this, but I can show you. Um, mm-hmm. It reminds me, honestly, a lot of working with traumatized kids and using play therapy because what we do yeah. in play therapy is so much metaphor work. Um, and kids are able to show me with figures, with story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what this was like for me um, yeah. in a way that is so different and than and using, using words. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, Anita Johnson. Uh, I was literally about to bring up that. <laughs> yeah. So um, eating in light of the moon. Um, yes. She is an actor. And I know mm-hmm. that she can explain even better yes. than ever be able to. Um, the power yeah. of and the power of story um, mm-hmm. in in treatment and in recovery. I think that book is just oh, incredible so for people who are um, on their own recovery journeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one I've been thinking of that book the whole time we've been talking and there's one metaphor she uses and I think it it's probably specifically talking about trauma or maybe like grasping onto an eating disorder but she's talking about and I'm not even going to do it justice but like a river you're like floating down a river and you're like drown or like trying to get out of the water you're drowning and you grab onto this log and the log is like the symbol for like your eating disorder where then eventually it's like, okay, now there's a shore. I can go to shore. I can go to safety, but it's hard to let go of that log because then you're like, well, I'm scared. What if I can't make it from the log to the shore? So I, I use that analogy or metaphor all the time with clients. Cause I feel like it's such a good, even going back to what you're saying about like just visualizing things and being like a visual learner. Like when people can visualize like, okay, that makes so much sense. Like, and it, like you mentioned that that can be easier to explain than just telling someone like, yeah, it makes sense that you would want to cling to your eating disorder because letting go of it is scary. But then when they can visualize like floating down a river and trying to get to shore, like it kind of takes it to another level. Yes. And even thinking like using that metaphor in the, in therapy to say like, okay, like let's imagine actually that that river is not calm at all. It is Mm -hmm. rushing water and you are not even close to shore, but you see this log. Mm -hmm. Like, of course you're going to hang on to it. It's the only expanding that metaphor and asking clients, Mm -hmm. like you experience this metaphor in your life and Mm -hmm. were there other logs, you know, in the water that you have done or were there none? Because the, mm. you had no social support. You had no safe base. Um, mm-hmm. Was that the only thing? So even going back to talking about resiliency and using that. So then I guess how would you like describe like PTSD and eating disorders and trauma work, like kind of the intersection of all of that? Yeah. So this is a, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> That's what I was thinking as I asked that. I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> no, you're, you know, this is such a valid question. So, um, I, you know, I have a lot of feelings about the DSM-5 mm-hmm. um, yeah. and part of the, when they, when they wrote the DSM, when they, you mm-hmm. know, um, before the DSM-5 was even published, there were all of these researchers and these trauma experts that were saying, um, mm-hmm. we have all this evidence, we have brain scans to prove it, we have all of the science to prove that PTSD is a terrible category yeah. for being able to diagnose with trauma. And there were 
people, Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and all these amazing scientists and therapists that were saying, um, this is this this category is actually excluding thousands of people that are severely mm. struggling with trauma, but because they don't, um, let's say, meet the criteria, they meet every criteria for trauma, but they're not having specific flashbacks. So I can't mm. say they have PTSD, um, even though what we know is that so many people um, you know, are, are struggling. I mean, every single one of us living in 2020 is freaking trauma. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> these people proposed this um, developmental trauma disorder and they were so hopeful that it was going to get in the DSM five because it was going to get, allow so much more people to get help. Right. Um, and the writers of the DSM five said, nah, mm-hmm. and it didn't change the criteria. So now we're still stuck with, um, with PTSD as being the only like trauma criteria. So when we look at the research and we're like, okay, so what is then the correlation? Um, what are the rates of PTSD and eating disorder samples? Um, I think, and there are a lot of people in the field that would agree with this. It, it is not accurate data because the category mm-hmm. of PTSD itself is so exclusive. I would be really curious um, mm-hmm. if we did have a diagnosis for developmental trauma. And then we yeah. that if we looked at the rates of developmental trauma in eating disorder samples. Um, mm. I think that that would be, I mean, I think that would be an incredibly interesting statistic. Yeah. And, and I think that we would see a much higher percentage um, mm-hmm. of people that have comorbidity. Um, so, so a lot of it is how are you just just – how are you determining what qualifies PTSD is kind of the first question. Yeah. Um, That makes sense. But yeah, that's a great question. And Mm -hmm. um, I can get really salty sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) So much. I have so many feels about it, but because so that's technically like the only true diagnosis for someone who's dealt with trauma, but then some people like you're saying may not even meet that criteria. So then that, I could see that holding people back from getting help too. Cause maybe they're like, Oh, well I'm not as like, I don't qualify for PTSD. So I must be fine. Exactly. 100%. And I see that all the time. I mean, there's people that are, there's people that are so dissociated because that was the way that they responded to their trauma. They had to, I'm just going to totally get out of my body. Yeah. I'm safe. That of course they they don't have flashbacks because they're not in yeah. enough. Um, I mean, there's just so so much, and I see this honestly. I see this a ton with teenagers because I really mm-hmm. love working with adolescents and teens that are um, mm-hmm. struggling with eating disorders. And for them too, so many of them are like, "Well, I don't really have like trauma, but mm-hmm. I witnessed a lot of domestic violence in the home, and mm-hmm. you know, my parents struggled with an addiction, but I, you know, yeah. I'm fine." And I'm like gosh, like that is just so yeah. that is traumatizing. And mm-hmm. we have to start to reframe what what trauma is so that people understand. Yeah. And, and maybe, I hate to say see themselves um, in that, but I, but I think we can normalize it, right? To say each of us yeah. has trauma in our bodies, every single one of us. Yeah. Um, and we all deserve to get help. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. Oh. Gosh, this is so much information that's so, so good. I feel like people are going to take a lot away from this. Um, 
So switching gears real quick, because I love to end all of our, Emma was about to call this a session. I like to end my sessions. <laughs> that would have totally you. <laughs> yeah. I like to end my interviews by asking um, guests what their favorite food memory is. Because I, and I mean, one of my big passions as a dietitian and working primarily with eating disorders is help people really just like reestablish the fun with food and the enjoyment and the taste and the culture and all of the different feature features of food. So going back to what we've talked about, like they can realize food is safe and food is meant to be enjoyed. So that being said, I love to ask people their favorite food memory, just so that especially people listening can see like, yeah, you can enjoy food and like have fun memories from it. So that being said, I would love to hear what your favorite food memory is or maybe one that comes to mind yeah uh Dylan I love that question um I grew up in a in a big loud Italian family um Mm -hmm. my grandparents were first generation immigrants uh, Mm -hmm. from Italy and so Italian food and specifically just plain pasta with red sauce that's been all day um Mm -hmm. with meatballs is like is my childhood and you know there's mm-hmm. one specific time I can remember eating it but we did Sunday night dinners growing up and it was mm-hmm. 99% of the time uh, Italian um, um, yes just the joy of sitting around the table and um, the savoriness of like all of those foods combined and the people that I was with um, and the spaghetti sauce splattered on my mm. t-shirt. Yes, always. <laughs> Just like, those are some of the sweetest memories that I have mm. um, around food. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you say pasta because I feel like that's a food I work with clients yeah. so much to bring peace back to because most people, it's hard to not like pasta. I get maybe there's some people out there who don't like it, but pasta is also one of, I feel like the most demonized foods in our culture. And so when we can bring back the enjoyment, I mean, there's just so much comfort in pasta and it's so easy to make and yeah. And so much culture. Oh man. There's so many Mm. good it yes oh it's so good well if people want to learn more from you find you on instagram where can people find you yes um you can find me on instagram um at um rachel underscore elise um and i also um i have a blog that i that i write on um and that is linked to my instagram actually um so if you find my instagram you can find the website um, from there, the, the website is rachelesellers.com. Um, but yeah, I, I write a lot about mental health and eating disorders and trauma and um, women's issues and, and all the things. Uh, so, um, you can find me there too. Yes, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for this conversation. This was so, so good. I'm excited for everyone to hear this. Uh, thank you for having me, Dylan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Food Freedom Podcast. If you're curious how you can support our podcast and help it reach more people like you, we would love if you would take a minute to rate and review the show. And be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'll see you next episode. Thank you.